0: It is an honor that we've each been given to assemble this evening, and we're so thankful that God has permitted that blessing. As often as the Scriptures remind us of the prerogative and the priority that associates to our service to Him, how delightful it is to assemble in the peaceful confine at the close of this first day of the week, and to do so assured that as we worship Him in spirit and in truth, that not only shall it be a blessing to His cause and kingdom, but you and I each shall be encouraged and built up indeed in the most holy faith. It is the case that as we continue our studies or reading through the Word of God, it is the case tonight that those same comments that could well have been made this morning certainly are in the case as well this evening. We've now read 80 chapters through the Word of God this year. That's a little over 6.7%. And so it's the case that as we have read through this point, the New Testament book of Matthew has been our focus. In the Old Testament, it's been Genesis and Job. And tonight, we come to the close of that book of Job and continue our journey onward to those next lessons. It'll be from Genesis on our next occasion as well. It is the case, of course, this book of Job is a, has a priority, a powerful message as it relates, as you can tell, to the matter of suffering. Humans and suffering... The lot of the human family, the characteristic attached to our sojourn on this planet and the suffering that goes with it, has been a matter used so often through the centuries by those who strive to oppose the existence of God, by those who attempt to, in their mind at least, convince themselves that Christianity is just a farce. You'll notice that the book of Job occupies a centerpiece to that way of thinking, that is to say, on those apparently appreciative of the fact of the lessons taught here and the place of suffering. Since suffering is such a vital part of our existence, tonight's lesson, quite frankly, will focus rather extensively on that over these last few chapters of the book of Job. Please be turning with me to the 38th chapter then of that book as we cast the spotlight on these last few statements, these last few chapters, and we'll all begin in the following way. You may remember that in the first two chapters of the book of Job, the plot was set before us. This difficulty surrounding Job, the conversation between God and the devil, and ultimately all the losses that Job suffered, including even his health. Then in chapter number 3, Job made mention of his own grief and his own characteristic of suffering. Beginning then in chapter 4, we found these friends of his began to speak. One by one, we learned the statements of Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz, and we learned one by one that as they answered or at least addressed Job, he then would reply. That took us all the way through chapter 31 when Job's final reply was uttered. In chapter number 32, another friend, a younger man who was just an observer apparently, he had been listening, he had been watching, he had been paying great attention to that which these others had stated, and then finally... After they had finished apparently their discourses, Elihu began to speak. Six chapters, chapters 32 to 37, Elihu addressed Job and quite frankly called him on the carpet for his failures in a number of ways, his discrepancies, his misunderstandings. After all of that was said and done, finally chapter number 38... We now have the God of heaven addressing Job, and I suppose apparently some others who may well have been in position to listen. But it seems clear that Job was the one primarily addressed. And you'll notice it is not by any means the way in which one might have expected God to answer. One might have thought that God would absolutely reign supreme and demand Job's immediate response and demand Job's utmost attention and in fact directly assert to Job that he was in error. But it'd rather God did it this way. Over the course of these last chapters, He made note of the fact that Job's friends were mistaken, that they had misgivings and misinterpretations relative to a number of points and they needed correcting. But by the same token, he also addressed Job and affirmed that he too was mistaken. Job didn't have everything right either. In fact, his attitude needed some adjustment. And in fact, God's adjustment took the following form. In verse number, again, chapter number 38, you'll notice that verse 2 says, God addressing Job. Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Did you notice the insinuation of the question, Who is this that has spoken without knowledge? Thought he had knowledge, appreciated knowledge within himself, but he has in fact darkened counsel. And now God to Job says, Job... Stand up and prepare yourself for the peppering of questions to follow. And proceeding then one by one, in amazingly rapid character, we find the following questions. We'll not nearly read all of them. But I would ask you to notice at least a few of the matters concerned in them. We might well begin again there in chapter number 38. Job, verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if you know, if you have understanding. Put yourself for a moment in Job's position. Job, where were you when I laid the utmost foundations, the most characteristic solidity of this planet? Where were you, Job? Do you know how I did it? Can you provide the explanation? Today, may I suggest to you that scientists still consider that a powerful question. Over the course of years, I've had the opportunity to wrestle with these as they imply characteristics of both physics and geology, and we still, some data suggests some things, but we still do not know the absoluteness of that answer. God, however, was only getting started. You'll notice in verse 5, Job, who laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Verse 6, Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened, or who laid the cornerstone thereof? Job, this earth upon which you stand. Can you explain the nature of its foundations? Can you understand the characteristic attached to the way in which it's so solid, but yet in other places it's not? Job, do you know those answers? Verse number 7, When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Job, can you explain that? Later in this book, or I should say earlier in this book as well, various constellations are mentioned the Pleiades, Arcturus. Job, can you explain them? Do you know their constituency? Can you explain the chemical composition of them? Job, can you explain the way by which light is able to travel from there to here? And furthermore, can you explain, Job, the way that the morning stars sing? Today, scientists wrestle with those thoughts, and in fact, we employ astronomically the characteristics of that to unfold for us the marvelous wonder of distant planets, the marvelous wonder of distant pulsars and quasars and other heavenly bodies. Verse number 8, "'Who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth?' As if it had issued out of the womb, Job. There was a time when the ocean, in fact, overstepped its bounds significantly, and waters flooded this planet. But now it isn't so. Job, can you explain how that? How that is? Verse number nine. When I made the cloud the garment thereof, the thick darkness a swaddling band. it and break for it my decreed place, and set bars and doors. Perhaps we already are gaining the character of these questions. And so as you come near the bottom of that slide, there are questions that deal with geology. There are questions that deal with physics. There are questions that deal with chemistry. There are questions that deal with the great scope of oceanography. God asked Job all of these. Job, tell me something. Give me the answers. I would submit to each of us, as you think about them, we still find quite often millions and millions of governmental dollars poured into research with respect to some of them. Still searching with great yearning the answers. And yet God asked Job these things 4,000 years ago. Isn't it amazing we still don't know all the answers? In fact, still don't know a large number of them. Beyond all of these on this slide... Perhaps it's fair to also notice that some of the questions not only dealt with the inanimate world like rocks and the ocean, but many of them God finally comes to the point of actually attacking the very nature of man or the animal kingdom. It is in fact, you'll notice here, what about the very nature of wisdom and understanding? To this day that is a critically important matter that distinguishes animals from human beings. You and I have a sentience about us, an understanding, a mental capability that they do not have. Job, can you explain how that difference comes about? There isn't an evolutionist in the world that can answer that question. Not one. They have their conferences, and they have their tremendous scholarly presentations, and not one has ever been able to explain that answer. And God asked it to Job that long ago. You'll notice beyond that, There's the nature of how the animals give birth, the way that they do, the regular manner in which it comes about. And to this day, it still takes a tremendous effort on the part of scientists sometimes to understand all the details by which that comes to pass. There are a few innocent but powerful presentations in God's questions. I've just selected a very small sampling. I would ask you to think interestingly about the feathers of a peacock. Have you ever witnessed a peacock? To this day, physics has a marvelous appreciation of the principle of interference of light in the manner by which the feathers of a peacock make use of that principle. The color isn't just simply a colored feather. It has to do with the layers in which those feathers lay on top of one another. And that is one of the means by which the color is presented. And isn't it beautiful, absolutely stunning. God asked Job about that. You'll notice He also asked him about an ostrich, a very unusual bird to be sure. You and I know today among the birds of the world, the ostrich occupies an almost singular position. Job, can you explain the way by which the ostrich has that character? I suspect Job had not a clue. Today we still wrestle biologically with understanding some of these Isn't it fair to say, as you close that slide, there's the strength of the horse. There's the characteristic of various birds such as eagles and hawks. And then you might notice that the entirety of chapter 40 is consumed with two special creatures. Very, very special. On the one hand, the behemoth. On the other, the the leviathan. And God especially made reference to them as a singular appreciation of His own grand ability... God, in essence, to Job says, Job, could you make that creature? I control everything about him. Can you do that? Can you imagine how small Job must have felt? Can you imagine the minuscule nature that he must have appreciated himself when he wrestled in his own mind with the nature of these questions and his inability to answer them? May I say that maybe those very thoughts lead us by way of application to the following idea. These questions should quite frankly lead us to some thoughts that I've tried to include on the first part of this slide. Again, the last chapter. God as He presents these questions to Job. He does so with the magnificence of this. These were intended to express in the mind of Job not only the absolute greatness of God, but man's complete lack of any position on which to stand to actually offer a question to God. It is not our business as human beings, given our frailty, our weakness, our absolute patheticness in comparison to God's greatness. It isn't our business to question Him. He is the one that's always right. Job needed to learn that lesson. He had felt as if he could hold his own in an argument with God. He had felt as if he had all the means that he could use to dialogue and actually pose a circumstance to God that God wasn't exactly equipped to answer. Job felt that his suffering was unjust, that it was improper, and that it ought not to have been. Job now recognizes in light of all these questions and how great God is and how ungreat He was... Job repented of his sins. And I would invite you to notice again what Jonathan read earlier. From chapter number 42. After all those questions, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me which I knew not. Job now confessed, I was in the wrong. I didn't know as much as I thought I did. I wasn't as knowledgeable as I thought I was. I didn't have all the answers like I perceived that I did. Did you notice twice he said, I spoke that which I did not know. Maybe that alone is a gigantic lesson. Isn't it true that sometimes in the human family, individuals can think they have all the answers, and they think that they have the perfect solution When in fact, once all the facts are presented and all the evidence is understood, they, if they'll honestly admit it, really didn't have all the answers. Isn't it true that as Job recognized those things, God continued then to address? You'll notice in verse 7, God made this observation. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee, and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. You'll notice many things that Job had affirmed were correct. And Job's friends were the ones that God says, My wrath is kindled because you three fellows have not spoken of me the thing that's right. Maybe again that leads us to appreciate that here were three who thought they were speaking for God. They thought that that which they uttered was in accordance with and in agreement to what God decreed. God says, although that's what you thought, that's not true. Today there are legions who claim to speak for God. They claim that they have the full assurance and the full confidence of the very God of heaven to back up what they affirm. But yet it simply isn't so. For that which they say is in disagreement to the sacred word of God, it is found to be in disagreement to that which the Lord has Himself revealed. And in so doing, they are merely liars, they are false prophets, in the words of 1 John 4.1. May we thus never lift ourselves to a place that is likened unto what Job felt he offered. is it true in light of all of those that then a burnt offering was offered? for the nature of the sinfulness that was then incumbent upon these three friends. And with that, we see the curtain closing rather amazingly in the last part of this chapter. This has been a part that has puzzled and bothered many individuals because we notice that Job's latter end was so abundantly blessed We do find that his possessions were returned in the sense that he had double the amount he started with. Double the amount of cattle, double the amount of sheep, double the amount of other things such as oxen. But not only that, we find that he also was blessed with children again. That's the part that has been a great matter of problem. Remember, his ten children were were slain earlier when the house fell on them in chapter 1. Well, how could it be that he now is found with ten children again? Is thus this book just a story? Is it a myth? Is it just a fine presentation on the part of a good storyteller years and years ago? Again, we must affirm that Job was a real man, and he lived really a long time ago. That reality might be understood in more than one way, but here's one possibility. Could it be that Job remarried... Could it be that that wife that cursed him and told him to curse God and die, maybe she passed away. Maybe he remarried and maybe he was blessed with children from the second wife. It could be. As you think about that presentation though, isn't it fair to say that these words close the book of Job? Verses 15 through 17 of Job 42. And in all the land were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. After this lived Job an hundred and forty years, and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died being old and full of days. So you see, Job lived for a hundred and forty years after these very great events of suffering we've detailed in this book. There was plenty of time to remarry. And under the long patriarchal ages of the book of Genesis, plenty of time to bear more children. Maybe that's the easiest explanation for the reappearance of ten children. It is, with regard to that, we come to the close of the book of Job. But in closing it, the topic of suffering has been directly put before us. I'd like to invite you to consider then, in rather rapid fashion, some comments about suffering. I make these comments as preparation for what any of us may be called upon to to face and to bear at some point in life. Or maybe you've already been called upon to deal with them in one way or another. Suffering, quite frankly, is just a part of existence, isn't it? God hasn't promised any of us a carefree, non-suffering sojourn in this life. It always brings its tears and it brings its difficulties and it brings its hardships. The book of Job is a grand way to help all of us be ready for them whenever they come our way. Here then are some results that we find from this book alone. We shall use some other books and other verses to help amplify the thought, but these are some matters that are so very encouraging. First of all, we recognize that Suffering isn't directly a consequence of sinfulness, on on the part of ourselves at least. We know that the wicked are called upon to suffer at times, but so too are the faithful. Even those that are right with God, they too have their own burdens to bear. And they too face their own problems and great challenges at times. And so one of the easiest things to keep in mind is when you and I are called on to suffer... As we think about our life, it may not be directly the result of a sinful choice we've made. Rather, it may well come from these other things. You realize that even in the course of that suffering, God is always right. He is always correct and proper. And whatever characteristic has brought that suffering about isn't a reflection in any way to question or doubt Him. For He is as lovingly faithful, as longingly astute as He has always been. Do we not read in the New Testament He is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Hebrews 13.8. And isn't it true that that God of heaven sits in throne and greatness there? Psalm 11 verses 3 and 4. And He rules in splendor from the location of that great throne in heaven. Isn't it amazing in light of that? That Hosea 14.9 perhaps challenges all of us in this way. Hosea was the first of the minor prophets, at least in terms of his presentation in the Bible. And the very last verse in the very last chapter of that book says, Who is wise, and he shall understand these things, prudent, and he shall know them, for the ways of the Lord are right. And the just shall walk in them, but the transgressor shall fall therein. The just shall walk in them. It's those that transgress that fail to appreciate the absolute rightness of God. Today, as you and I look about us, we often can see those who assert that that statement isn't true. They think they have a better way than God does, whether it be concerning the church, concerning marriage, concerning the family, concerning the nation, and any number of other particulars as well. But God's always right. If man is wise enough, he ultimately will realize that fact. But yet another point following is this one. When you and I give appreciation to that which is evil, we know that there are those who engage in evil. We know it because the Bible claims that what they do is evil. We can then ask, why don't they suffer? Why are not theirs life encumbered with suffering? Well, you and I know that evil doesn't always immediately bring the result of suffering. You and I, again, may think that that's not fair. Looks like God would make them suffer. We can rest assured of this. In this life, their suffering may come about. It might. But we can rest assured that on that day of judgment, all final words will be affirmed and all final sentences will be presented. That very nature of what we're raising here was a question in the mind of the psalmist in Psalm 73. Why don't the wicked suffer? I'm trying to live right, and I'm trying to do what the Lord has bidden me, and yet my health is bad, my job is gone from me, and on and on that list may go. But let us not be to the point of where we think we could argue with God. That's where Job was wrong. God, again, is always right. You'll notice beyond that is this point. Suffering at times, based on this book at least, could be a response on the part of faithfulness and the apprehension of the greatness of God's rightness. Remember, in that conversation between God and Job, or rather God and, and the evil one, permission was given by, by God to allow that suffering to happen. Could God ultimately allow you or me to suffer to ultimately bring about a greater good in our life or of someone that we love? we couldn't absolutely say that'd be beyond what God would permit. But might we say, in light of all of it, may we never allow the suffering to drive a wedge between us and God. Eternity is too grand, heaven is too great to forfeit it for what in this life would be sinful. Can't we see that final statement? There are times that we find in the sacred Word of God that suffering actually is what can be utilized to draw an individual to attention with God. Isn't it true that as we reflect on our suffering, doesn't it remind us of our own mortality? Doesn't it remind us of the fact that in this life and in this place, we often are called to do these things that are so unpleasant? Again, isn't it true that that suffering can well be what draws attention to God? That's what we do read in Psalm 18.6. There, out of distress, the psalmist cried unto God, When did He cry? When He was in distress. Sometimes in those moments of our own appreciation of suffering, we do remember that there is a God in heaven. And He is in control and we need to be subservient to Him. Amazingly, in light of those things, just a few final lessons and the lesson will be yours. Suffering does teach us a number of things. The top one on that list... Suffering does teach us that we are not God. Because if we could stop this pain and stop this suffering, we would do it. It does remind us that not only that's true, but it encourages us to lean on someone greater than we. We can petition one, namely God, to help us, to give us courage and to give us the characteristic of perseverance so that this does not overwhelm me. Through the Bible, how often do we read about insistence upon perseverance so that we not faint, Luke 18, 1. That we ought always to pray, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17. You'll notice that attribute of prayer brings us to this point. Doesn't suffering remind us that this world is not our home? It reminds us that this world is encumbered with the leadership of the devil and in so doing it has been encumbered with that which is described as painful that which is encumbered with suffering. We look for a place better than this. We look for a place where there is no suffering, no sorrow. Revelation twenty one four. We look for a place described as the very opposite of the sojourn here. You'll notice that our suffering reminds us of that place. I'm sure that you and I have known of many an individual who has been called to bear a healthful kind of suffering and they look so fervently through faithful eyes of Christianity to a home where this body isn't ravaged the way it is here. They look for a place where mind isn't succumbing to dementia and they look for a place where their voice is as perfect as it ever was to sing the praises unencumbered with cancer forevermore. We all look for a place like that if we're wise. Isn't it true that one last set of ideas, suffering does help us in such a Fantastic way to think about those ideas about the middle part of that slide. The spirit of eternity. All that seemingly is descriptive of the way in which our body deteriorates here. And that so often is the source of our suffering. And yet that deterioration does not have a place there. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Romans eight eighteen, In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, the inspired writer there said, I reckon that though our light affliction is but for a moment, it worketh for, my, for us a far more eternal weight of glory. Our affliction? Paul said that. And he knew well about affliction, didn't he? Can we not say in light of those matters these final thoughts? Sadness will come our way. I'm sure you and I have stood at the casket of loved ones. We have in fact been present as we watched a loved one deteriorate with cancer or some other serious malady. We watched disease ultimately take over their body and there was not a thing we could do about it. If we could have, we would have done anything to assist them. That teaches us one more time that our life here is but temporary. Our life here will soon give way to an existence elsewhere, and it is for that that we must be ready. It is for that that we must make sure the preparation has been made. The book of Job highlights that thought for us, doesn't it? One final thought, in the lesson will be yours as we utilize the principles of the Bible to help us deal with unpleasantries and sufferings and difficulties and problems. Maybe it's the psalmist who in Psalm 23 has uttered some very encouraging words. We well remember that that's the shepherd's psalm. "'The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul.'" David was able to make that assertion and how special it was. Tonight, as we think about some of the final words, the other words that we might well utilize from the pen of David. Didn't David himself say in Psalm 90 verse 12, Teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Didn't he say in Psalm 39 4, Again, beseeching the very instruction of God in the following way that we might know how frail we are. Do you suppose Job knew how frail he was after the suffering was over? I have the greatest assertion that there was no doubt about that in his mind any longer. May you and I with wisdom know how frail we are and live wisely. In conclusion, the book of Job has reminded us about suffering. May we all be ready for it when it comes. And with that, may we be ready for our own death, whenever that might be, so that we can leave this life resting assured that heaven will be ours, that the efforts and the difficulties of this life have been well worth whatever they would have cost us, for heaven indeed is now our reward. Tonight, if your name is not written in the book of life, if all isn't well with your soul, this hymn of encouragement has been chosen. We're going to stand in just a moment and sing that, and if we could be of help to you in your response to the Lord we'd be delighted, for notice you're not responding just to me or to our eldership. The one to whom you respond is far greater than any of us. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. If we could be assistance to you in your initial obedience or in rededication of your life, why not come and do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.